Hi, welcome to episode 14 of Global Exchanges, a podcast about foreign exchange markets and related issues. I'm Greg Anderson. In this week's episode, my co-host Stephen Gallo and I will be discussing today's RBA policy announcement. We will compare it with the baby steps taken toward normalization recently by the Fed, BOC, and RBNZ. We will contrast Aussie and Kiwi with a few ADXY currencies. The title for this episode is Normalization Down Under. Hi, I'm Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges, presented by BMO Capital Markets. Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Stephen's co-host. In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related financial markets like commodities. We strive to make this show as interactive as possible, so don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash global exchanges. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates or subsidiaries. Greg, it's July 6, 2021. This is going to be our first podcast of the third quarter. And as you mentioned in the intro, it's going to focus partly on the Reserve Bank of Australia. And incidentally, we're launching episode 14 of Global Exchanges on the same day as the RBA's monthly policy announcement. Just cutting right to the chase, what stands out to me from the central bank's official statement is that they're now being more specific about the cap for the weekly asset purchase pace, 4 billion Aussie to be exact. And and to the best of my knowledge, they weren't doing that before. They weren't being specific about a number. So it looks like to me, there's been a slight normalization of policy from the RBA, uh, but it also looks very much like they're using the publicized figure, much as the Bank of Canada already does for a transparency and communication tool with the market. Am I reading this the right way? You are. But let me back up for the sake of our listeners and contrast what the RBA has done since the start of the pandemic with other central banks like the Fed and the BOC. So back in March of 2020, when all the central banks cut their base rates to their zero lower bound and initiated QE, the RBA had its own couple of unique twists. Uh, so first, it implemented a yield curve control program, You know, something that, that the Fed and the BOC didn't do with a target three-year interest rate of 25 basis points. Second, it created a funding for lending facility that it called its uh, TFF, Term Funding Facility. This facility provided three-year lending to banks, provided they were taking the money and using it to lend to businesses, uh, particularly small and medium-sized businesses. The RBA at that stage didn't initiate a traditional X amount per month type of bond purchase program. However, In November of 2020, with Aussie rebounding sharply, the RBA came in with a a second stage. It cut its base rate down to 10 basis points, and it also launched a traditional bond purchase program on top of the yield curve control bond purchase program. So that program was initially announced as 100 billion Aussie over six months. I guess market participants could have done the math on that and said, oh, hey, that averages out to 5 billion a week but it wasn't communicated that way. And the market expectation was, uh, hey, maybe that bond purchase 
program, you know, could be lumpy, uh, some more in, in one week than another. And in fact, the purchases were lumpy back in February uh, when we had the global yield spike. The, the RBA uh, bought, bought more. They front-loaded purchases. At any rate, after the initial six-month period of that program was uh, drawing to a close, the RBA announced another six-month, $100 billion Aussie extension that would take us through mid-September. So again, if you worked out the math, it was $5 billion uh, a week, but the RBA primarily communicated as, as $100 billion over six months. So uh, long story short, yes, there has been a noteworthy communication shift now to where they are talking about a pace per week like other central banks. Uh, I guess most other central banks are pace per month, but they have said pace per week. And then they've left it open as to when this pace will next be reevaluated, other than to say it will be at least through mid-November. So basically, Greg, if I read you right, what you're saying here is there hasn't been a whole lot of policy normalization from the RBA. I mean, uh, they've gone from $5 billion a week to $4 billion a week. Is that it? Yes and no. There's nuance here. I will point out that the FOMC's June median dot brought the Fed's forward guidance for the first rate hike into 2023, while the RBA continued to say in, in this announcement that its base case is no rate hike until 2024. So that's less of a normalization than the Fed. And I'd argue that it's less of a normalization than the BOC also, uh, because the BOC has communicated that it thinks Canada's output gap will close in mid-2022. And yeah, uh, as you pointed out, a taper from five to four isn't much. However, the other thing the RBA did was to end the uh, TFF on June 30th. And the termination of that program was cold turkey. It wasn't done in gradual steps. I think the RBA was nervous about the market reaction to the tightening of that screw. So they didn't want to tighten other screws very much. But I don't think that because this taper was only from five to four, that the next taper will, uh, and that presumably will be announced in October, November, will be from four to three. Uh, it might be from four to two uh, or something like that. Okay, Greg. So I guess this isn't a bad time to bring the RBNZ into the picture. And it looks to me on that front like the markets are pricing in or close to pricing in and the central bank is signaling uh, a, a move up in the base rate as early as next year, sort of around mid-2022 or the second half of 2022. Now, I know from my own experience that the RBNZ uh, is a targeter of macroprudential tools, and it focuses very much on uh, financial stability risks in the housing market. So talking about hiking rates and actually delivering a rate hike, those are two different things. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of that. But you seem to think that despite what the RBNZ is saying now, you seem to think that there are other factors that are going to weigh on the Kiwi relative to the Aussie, right? With the RBNZ, I would actually say that they're doing their very best to hide any type of forward guidance. They didn't mention a projected first rate hike in their last uh, interest rate announcement. And then in the summary of their quarterly inflation report, you know, they left that out too. They did bury deep in the statistical annexes of that report, a projection of the first rate hike being in Q3 of 2022. But look, I, I would just say the RBNZ is dealing with a different mix of issues. So the rise in housing prices in New Zealand is a highly uh, sensitive political issue 
And that has caused the finance ministry to press the central bank to get it to, to fight house price appreciation. So where the RBA seems really worried about Dutch disease, the RBNZ is more worried about a housing price bubble. All right. All right. So Greg, let's redirect this conversation back over to currencies, particularly Aussie and Kiwi versus the US dollar. What are your thoughts there, given the central bank backdrops you've just described so much of? Given the central bank backdrops, and more importantly, given the uh, commodity price backdrop, I don't think the recent dips in Aussie US and uh, Kiwi US are warranted by the fundamentals. In fact, I'd say uh, Aussie USD is a steal at 75 cents, with good potential for a rally back up to 78 in the next few months. And for Kiwi, I think it's a steal below 70, with a good potential for a rally back up to 72 or 73 over the next few months. Between the two, I guess I like Aussie a bit better because its commodity terms of trade looks a bit better than New Zealand's. Australia's imports of energy as a share of GDP are smaller than New Zealand's. And then the price of its export basket has done better and has better future prospects, I think. But uh, let me turn the tables here. If I think that we can see a rally in Aussie and Kiwi due to commodity prices and central bank normalization, what's your view on the ADXY? I mean, Aussie and Kiwi are normally correlated with ADXY, right? Well, Greg, you're acting a little bit like the tail wags the dog with that line. But really, at the end of the day, it's China that is very often, if not always, in the driver's seat of the ADXY. Let me talk a little bit about what China has done with its policy normalization. So 2020 was uh, a tremendous year for the Chinese economy in terms of the speed with which it rebounded from COVID-19 and the timing of it being very early relative to uh, Western economies. It then started to normalize the credit cycle earlier this year. And now it looks like they've basically just paused. I would say with their recent uh, liquidity injections and withdrawals, they're not really signaling anything major on the horizon. Uh, they're keep keeping things pretty steady uh, and short-term RMB rates, that is onshore RMB rates, they're pretty flat. They're pretty stable. So Stephen, with what you've said about Chinese authorities' policy responses, We've seen the exchange rate just die in the 640s over the last several weeks. Uh, do you think that's by design? Yeah, I do, Greg. I think the PBOC are more than comfortable with dollar RMB in the 640, 650 range for now. And I think that range ties up with the extent to which regulators have tempered the domestic credit cycle in China. And look, they're probably reasonably satisfied with the RMB appreciation they've had since the 2019-2020 low point in economic activity during the pandemic, and also what they've received uh, in terms of inbound capital flow uh, since the trough in financial market activity or financial asset prices last year. So yeah, if anything, uh, what the PBSC has been doing has been holding back or holding down the ADXY. So let's say that uh, dollar RMB stays flat in a narrow range. Are there any ADXY currencies that might appreciate either due to a central bank normalization story or a commodity prices are really high story? 
Well, Greg, you raise an interesting point, and I think that the behavior of some of the other components of the ADXY partly explain the PBOC's reticence as far as RMB appreciation is concerned. So if I look at the Korean won, the Indonesian rupiah, and the Malaysian ringgit, all three of those currencies are trading towards the low end of their one-year ranges versus the Chinese renminbi. Now, Indonesia and Malaysia, those currencies are are both typically commodity plays, even though in the case of Indonesia, it's not a net crude oil exporter. But my point is that their respective central banks are probably going to lag behind the RBA and the RBNZ on policy normalization because of where their economies are in dealing with COVID and the rolling out of the vaccines. So this is despite the fact that commodity prices um, generally have been well supported, but they're basically well behind in terms of dealing with COVID and rolling out the vaccines. Hey, Stephen, I noticed you mentioned early on in your discussion, Korea. And of course, it's a commodity importer, not an exporter, but, but it's an importer whose economy is doing relatively well. Is there a chance that BOK hawkishness could cause appreciation in the Korean won? Well, actually, Greg, I think one of the reasons that the BOK has turned a bit more hawkish is the fact that the currency is not trading excessively strong right now. So you have a number of different factors weighing on the uh, Korean won, which are making it easier for the BOK to talk about normalization. Uh, China has slowed the appreciation of its currency. Uh, You've got oil weighing on net importer currencies like Korea. It's a great time for the BOK to sneak in hawkish rhetoric and possibly even a rate hike uh, without causing a huge appreciation of its currency. And one of the reasons why they would want to do that, that is talk about policy normalization, is because of asset prices. I mean, they've been on the receiving end of significant capital inflows over the past you know, six, nine, even 12 months as a result of Western central bank stimulus and the hunt for yield, uh, that those inflows have complicated financial stability risks in South Korea. So the, the, the BOK wants to sneak in some policy normalization. They also probably want to put a break on some of that, on some of that, that inflow. So they want to, to temper uh, the rise in asset prices and the currency being where it is now is a good opportunity for them to do that. Hey, I think this is a pretty good place to end it. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds good to me, Greg. Thanks as always to our listeners for joining us. We'll be back with episode 15 of Global Exchanges in two weeks on July 20th. All the best for now. Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.